So good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Alex McMorrin, and I'm the pastoral intern that's going to be here for the summer, and so I will be tag-teaming with Rob. Uh, you'll see me up here quite a bit over the coming months. We'll go back and forth. Some of you may remember me from last summer. I was here last summer doing the same job. Some of you may not. Maybe you're new here, or maybe you were just away last summer traveling. And so it's really good to, to meet you and to see you. To tell you a little bit about myself, uh, I am a pastor in training, and I'm going to school at Acadia Divinity College in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Um, but I'm originally from here, from Ottawa. Um, I grew up in this city. I grew up going to Canada Baptist Church, which some of you may know. And so I really enjoy coming home to serve in my hometown for the summer. So I recently had the opportunity to go to Kenya on a two-week study trip, which that's where the shirt came from. And uh, it was part of the Praxis program with Canadian Baptist Ministries. And so the Praxis program is a program for student pastors like myself to go abroad and for a few weeks and learn about how God is working in the world through the church. And so every time the program runs, the students go somewhere different. Um, and they look at how God is working through the church to address a particular issue. And so the focus is always on God's work and the work of the church, uh, but the place and the issues change every time the program runs. And so this year the trip was to Kenya and Africa, and the issue we were looking at was food security and climate change. How is God at work through the church to address the issues of food security and climate change? And so today I'd like to share with you some of what I learned and saw on that trip. Um, but before I get too deep into it, uh, I want to talk a little bit about how CBM does uh, its work overseas. So in the past, the way that church organizations uh, did missions work overseas was by sending people, sending people from the West to wherever the mission was. And they would bring their knowledge and their expertise to the locals. And so whether it was knowledge of the gospel or knowledge of how to build a water cistern, the model was very much from us to them. But what CBM has realized is that the experts in the local context are actually the locals. No matter how much you or I learn about Kenya, it'll never compare to a lifetime of experience living in the Kenyan context. And so on this practice trip, on this study trip, uh, we weren't going to learn from Western missionaries living in Africa. We were going to learn from CBM's local partners in Kenya. And we were getting the Kenyan perspective on climate change and food security. And that was really valuable because Kenyans aren't always thinking about these issues in the way that we do in North America. Um, some of what our local teachers had to say quite surprised me, and maybe it'll surprise you too. So without further ado, let's, let's get into it. The first church, uh, the, the first day of our trip, excuse me, I have a typo in my script. <laughs> the, first, the first chunk of our trip was a three-day uh, workshop on farming and food security uh, in the Kenyan context, learning from local experts, held at a retreat center called Brackenhurst. Now, Brackenhurst is nestled in the highlands northwest of Nairobi, which is the capital, and it's a beautiful location. Uh, it's the perfect place to appreciate God's good creation, which fit well with the themes of the course. And so, Julian, if you want to put up some photos of Brackenhurst, that's what the, the retreat center on the grounds looked like. Um, so, very beautiful place. Kenya is a very beautiful country. And so our instructors for the workshop were uh, two locals, Ricky and Apollo, and they worked for an organization called Sustainable Farming Services Africa. So that's the next photo. That's the two of them there in our little classroom with our projector. 
And so, and then on the third day, we were also joined by a local representative from Canada Food Grains Bank, or CFGB for short. And CFGB is a lot like CBM. They work with local organizations and local partners. And so our workshop started with an introduction to agriculture in Kenya. Uh, and so agriculture is the largest sector of the Kenyan economy, and it's their largest export. Uh, but farming in Kenya looks very different than farming in Canada. So here in Canada, the average farm is several hundred acres in size, and it's highly mechanized. It's a sort of a very well-oiled machines, big business. Uh, but in Kenya, the average farm is less than one acre, and it's all planted and harvested by hand. It's all small family farms, mostly family farms. There are some big mechanized farms. And another way that is different from Canada is that Kenya doesn't have seasons the same way that Canada has seasons. And so because they're on the equator, they don't have a winter and a summer. It's the same all year round, but they do have a rainy season and a dry season. And you plant in the rainy season. In the dry season, there's, there's no water, so you can't grow plants. And so while climate change here in Canada means longer summers and a longer growing season, in Kenya it actually means a shorter rainy season and a shorter growing season. Kenya is a hot and dry country, and it's only getting hotter and drier. And so Ricky and Apollo then, after sort of introducing us to the Kenyan context, and they gave us a lot of details like population growth and stuff, but after they got into all that, they explained to us what food security is. And their definition of food security surprised me. It was a lot broader than I expected. So we often think about food security as just having enough food to fill your belly, but to be truly food secure, you also need enough nutrients and other vitamins to sustain a healthy and active lifestyle. So if you are just living off of wheat and you're lacking protein and you're lacking vitamins, then that's not, uh, you're not truly food secure because you can't live a healthy life. And then the part that really surprised me was that you need access to food that counts as food in your culture, which sounds weird, but as an example, dandelions are edible but we don't eat them here in Canada. We consider them a weed. And so if there was a famine in Canada and all we had access to were dandelions, we could make dandelion salad and we could eat that, but we wouldn't really be food secure because we don't see that as food. And so in the Kenyan context, the staple food is maize or corn. And so food security is linked directly to uh, the availability of maize and the, the prosperity of maize. And I'll talk a little bit about that later on. And so if they have access to bread but not corn, they're not food secure because they don't see that as food. But of course they also need access to other foods because corn alone doesn't provide all the nutrients you need to be healthy. Another thing that Ricky and Apollo explained to us was a new way of thinking about sustainability. So often in the West when we talk about sustainability, we're talking about what is sustainable for the planet. Uh, but Ricky and Apollo explained to us that uh, for something to be truly sustainable, it needs to be sustainable in three ways. Uh, for the planet, but also for people, and also for profits. And so for centuries, we've focused on what's sustainable for people and for profits. And we've neglected the planet. And we know now that that's bad, and we're seeing the consequences of that. In Kenya, in the shorter rainy season, in Canada, with the wildfires out west... But if we focus on being sustainable for the planet and neglect being sustainable for people, then that's no good either because it's we'll end up killing ourselves. And so if our practice isn't producing enough food to feed people, it's no good. And if our practices aren't sustainable in terms of profits, then people won't be able to afford to keep doing them. 
So even if it's in theory sustainable for the planet and sustainable for people, if it drives you bankrupt, then it's also no good. And so then how are they actually meeting these challenges in the Kenyan context? Well, so the various organizations we interacted with, including Sustainable Farming Africa and CFGB, they're promoting something they call conservation agriculture. And so the primary goal of CA is increasing the health of the soil, and it does that in several ways. So, for example, rather than completely clearing your field after every harvest, you can actually leave the unharvested stalks to lie in your field, and they will protect the soil and provide cover for the soil. So when the rain falls and hits the ground, it won't hit the ground as hard. It won't cause as much runoff. Um, and another thing that you can do to protect the soil health is to um, grow different kinds of crops together. So that can be crop rotation, or it can mean intercropping, which is growing them in the same field. And that's because different crops take and receive different nutrients from the soil. And so you can keep balanced soil health by crop variety. And so the best part about CA is that it meets the requirements we talked about earlier. It's both environmentally friendly and it boosts crop yields. And so it's sustainable for, for the planet, for people, and for profits. And because you're growing multiple kinds of crops together, either through crop rotation or intercropping, you're getting that diversity of nutrients you need for true food security. So after our three days of classes, we got to enjoy a walk through the Brackenhurst Forest Trail and appreciate the natural beauty of God's creation. So a lot of the land around Brackenhurst has been cleared for tea farming and coffee farming. Um, but Brackenhurst has preserved uh, 24 acres of indigenous forest for study and for enjoyment. And so you can see some pictures of that up here on the screen now. And you can see the white people are our team. And then with us is Andre Sibamana in the red sweater. And he is CBM's Africa team lead. And so as we were walking along, Andre was pointing out things in the forest that we've been talking about in class. So in a forest, when plants die, they fall on the ground and they stay there. And they provide cover for the soil. And eventually they decompose and fertilize the soil. And also in a forest, obviously, lots of different kinds of plants grow together. And they all put nutrients, different nutrients into the soil to keep it healthy. And so we might think of conservation agriculture as this new innovation in farming. But actually, it's the way that God intended for plants to grow all along. And we're just catching up to what God has always been doing with this new strategy. So after Brackenhurst, we got to spend a few days traveling to local villages uh, to see what we learned about in class put into practice. And so if you put a picture up on the screen, there we go. That's uh, two farmers, Francis and Sarah, and they have a small family farm, less than an acre. And there they are standing in front of their field of corn. And you can see that the corn is taller than they are. You won't believe it, that corn grew that tall in three weeks. And so with conservation agriculture techniques, that's how fast the corn grows. And that's not just a Kenyan thing, by the way. We could see a plot across the road that had been planted at the same time, but without CA, and the stalks are about half as tall and not anywhere close to harvest. And so with CA, lives are being changed because the harvest is so much better, and so it's more sustainable for the planet, but it's also more sustainable for people. Another project we got to see was a community banking and lending program. So for a lot of small Kenyan farmers, banking services aren't accessible. They don't have any collateral. They can't get loans in case of emergencies. And so one of CBM's local partners, the African Christian Churches and Schools, have set up this community banking program. And you can see that we were there. We got to see a meeting of it. And so the way that it works is there are monthly meetings. And to participate in a meeting, you need to buy one to five shares in the bank. And so you can't show up to a meeting and not contribute, but you also can't buy 100 shares and dominate the bank. 
And then if you need a loan, you can get one up to three times the value of your shares. And all this is done publicly in these tents where everyone's in attendance. And so your neighbors can see what you do with the loan that they saw you get at the meeting. And so you can't misuse it or use it for something else. And that strategy has worked out really well for them because they've never had anyone default on a loan. And so the bank can also issue emergency grants for things like medical emergencies or crop failures. And it's a communal approach to banking that is totally different than the way we do banking in the West. So banking here in North America is all based around privacy and individuality. And here, this community bank program is all based around, it's all open and it's all based on the community lifting each other up. And so as I was sitting in the, the, the meeting, I was thinking about Acts chapter 2, if you're familiar with that. The early church, they held everything in common and gave to everyone who had need. And through their mutual love and generosity, the church was able to grow. The last project we visited was a vertical garden project. And that's a picture of a vertical garden there on the screen. And so we learned in our class time that food security means a healthy and balanced diet. And that's what the vertical gardens are for. They're a very space-efficient way to grow garden vegetables which then supplement the cornfield. And you can see a cornfield in the background of that picture. And so the way those vertical gardens work is they have a core of rocks, and that lets the water sort of flow down through the whole thing instead of um, seeping into just the soil at the top. And then you have a ring of soil around that, and then the mesh bag, and then there are holes in the mesh bag, and that's where you plant your vegetables. So that's uh, spinach and kale that you can see there. Now, a lot of what we did in Kenya was just learning and observing uh, but here we actually had to roll up our sleeves and uh, help build one of these things. So if you put the next slide up, there you go. Oh, uh, there's supposed to be a picture of me mixing manure there. Also, I guess you've been spared that photo. And then here we are putting rocks in the central column as well. And as we were doing that, uh, we were working with local Kenyan women who this was who the vertical garden was going to be for. And man, they were way tougher than we were. So they do the hard work of farming every day. And it, it showed they did more than their fair share of the work. So the next day was Saturday. It was, that was sort of our first week. And so on Saturday, we took a break day. We went on safari because no trip to Africa is complete without a safari. And so here are some photos of the animals that we saw. We have, I had way too many photos. It was hard to pick which ones to, to put in, but there's some of the animals that we saw, and we saw many more as well. Now, that was a break day, but it was also a learning opportunity for us because the reserve where we did the safari was also engaged in the work of conservation. So, for example, here's a photo of me feeding a rhino. This is Baraka, and Baraka is completely blind. One eye he lost in a fight, and the other one is covered with cataracts. And so you may know that rhinos are endangered because people hunt them for their horns. Their horns are ground up and used in medicine. And so at this reserve, they actually have armed rangers with guns guarding the rhinos to protect them from hunters. And then for old rhinos like Baraka, they provide them the support that they need. And in the 40 years since the reserve has started protecting the rhinos, the reserve has seen their population significantly recover. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's like doubled or tripled or something like that. And then another thing the reserve had was a chimpanzee sanctuary. Chimps aren't native to Kenya, and so all of the chimps that are in the reserve are rescues. So they're from circuses or private pet ownership. And in these pictures, the chimps are behind a wire fence, um, but they're not enclosed. They actually had more space on their side than we had on our side. It was for our protection, not theirs. Uh, unfortunately, these chimps can't be reintroduced to the wild because of the way that they have been brought up and the way that they have been treated. But the reserve provides a safe place for them to live. So that was our first week. 
Lots of time spent around Nairobi, the capital, learning about farming and sustainable farming and community development. The second week was a little bit different. So we flew down to the coast, to the Indian Ocean, where there, we visited a Kenyan branch of an organization called Arosha, or Arasha. And the phrase Arasha is Portuguese, and it means the rock. And Arasha is a Christian conservation organization that has offices all around the world, including multiple in Canada. And so at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, the first humans are told to care for the world and to cultivate the garden. That's the instruction they're given by God. And Arasha takes that creation care mandate very seriously. It's their motivation for what they do. And so at the Kenyan location, they have a number of local initiatives, including education work in schools, partnering with local pastors to educate their congregations, work with farmers to implement conservation agriculture like we saw, uh, buying up land to protect local forests, and marine research. And they also partner with other local organizations and support them in the conservation work that they're doing. So for the week that we were there, we got to see and participate in several of Arasha's initiatives. So, for example, we got to visit a tree farm that Arasha partners with um, to save endangered tree species. So locals will log trees for their firewood, and the locals don't have a botanical education. They don't know which trees are endangered, which ones are not. And so this tree farm grows the endangered trees to protect them, but it also grows and then distributes trees that are not endangered that grow really fast. And so local families can plant that on their property and have continual access to firewood. Another initiative we got to visit was a turtle sanctuary that Arasha partners with. And so that turtle there uh, is brought in. It's waiting for the doctor. It has a fishing hook in one of its flippers. And the doctor was going to be coming in later that day to remove it and then release it back into the wild. And so the turtle sanctuary does turtle veterinary work. But they also do work protecting the beaches where turtles lay their eggs uh, because turtles are losing their traditional nesting grounds as more and more beaches are taken up either by tourists or by garbage. And so another thing that uh, Arosha does is coral reef restoration. And the way that they do that is they have a steel wire mesh that the coral can grow on, like scaffolding. But to weigh the meshes down in the water, they need these little concrete plugs. And so this was another time that we had to get our hands dirty and do some actual work. And so we hauled up buckets of beach from the buckets of sand from the beach and spread it out. And then we used existing concrete plugs to make molds in the sand. Then we had to mix the concrete by hand and pour it by hand into the molds that we had made. And so that was hot and heavy work. And I've got a lot of respect for the people at Arasha who do that kind of work every day. One of the coolest things we got to do when we were at Arasha was bird tagging. Flip over to the next slide. There we go. So this was this was really cool. Uh, I thought it was really cool anyway. Um, so at Arasha, they have these big nets in the forest that the birds fly into and they fall into. And it doesn't hurt the birds to do this, but it, they sort of get stuck there. And then Arasha bird people come around and they free the birds from the nets. They untangle them. And they take them back to the Arasha Center. And they measure them and check their feathers. And they're able to determine the gender of the bird and the age of the bird. And they measure and weigh them to see how healthy they are. And then they add a little metal ring to the bird's leg to identify them. And that ring has an ID number on it. And if the birds come back again next year and they get recaptured, then Arasha can track the health of the birds. And through this process, they can learn a lot about bird migration patterns and bird health and the population of endangered species and things like that. And 
I was, it was amazing to watch them because the way that they hold the birds and they handle the birds is very gentle, does not hurt the birds at all, but also keeps them totally still and, and calm. I was quite impressed. We didn't get to do any of the measuring and weighing. Um, I don't know how to hold a bird. But we did get to sort of go with them to the nets and untangle them from the nets. And at the end, we got to release them. And so that was the trip. Uh, we had a few other days here and there, just traveling um, to and from the various places. Um, and we also got to attend some African churches on the Sundays that we were there. And if you ever are feeling grouchy because a church service is running 15 minutes over, African church services are three hours, so it could be a lot worse. I'm just kidding. I, the church services there were excellent. I love them. But the bulk of our trip was focused on this this conservation and farming work. Like I said, the focus of our trip was on God's work and the church's work to address the issues of climate change and food security. So that's all great. That's all happening in Kenya. But I'm sure you're wondering what this has to do with us here in Canada. What are our takeaways from this trip? Well, the first, the first and major takeaway for me is that creation care matters. There are some strains of Christianity that would emphasize, well, we go to heaven when we die, so why do we have to worry about the world? But actually, creation care is deeply embedded in the Christian story. At the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, the first humans are told to take care of and cultivate the world. That's the first instruction that we get. And we've done a very bad job of that over the past couple hundred years, and we're seeing the consequences of that both abroad and at home. We have the wildfires burning in Alberta and Saskatchewan right now. My sister is living in Saskatoon, and so she's seeing the smoke and the smog from those fires. And so a lot of Christians, they accuse, or a lot of people accuse Christians of being part of the problem, and that Christians have used biblical doctrines to exploit the world and mine it of resources. But organizations like Arasha show that there is a uniquely Christian response to climate change and that creation care is deeply embedded in the Christian story. But at the same time, we need to find ways forward that are sustainable in all three of the ways that Ricky and Apollo outlined for us. So it has to be sustainable for the planet, but it also has to be sustainable for people, and it also has to be sustainable for profits. Creation care is deeply embedded in the Christian story, but so is care for people, right? Concern for the poor and the needy among us runs through the whole Bible. And so humans are not some scourge on the earth. We're not some virus that needs to be cured. If the earth is going to remain healthy, you may hear that idea or less extreme versions of that idea, but that's not true. And actually, I would argue that separating people from planet is actually a false dichotomy. It's a false split because we're part of creation. We are animals on this earth and we are part of the thing that God has made. And so if we're going to care for all of creation, it means caring for people too. That might sound like a hard balance to strike, but after this trip, I'm actually really optimistic about our ability to move forward and be sustainable in all three ways. And so we saw with conservation agriculture that there is a way to strike that balance that's good for people and good for the planet. And often these these ways that uh, strike that balance aren't actually new ways. They're old ways as we catch up to what God is already doing and the wisdom that he has already given us in the Bible and in creation. Biblical wisdom and biblical principles can help us find that balance and help us find ways to move forward that are sustainable on all three levels. So that's, that's the trip, and that's my talk. And so as we close our service, I would invite you to join me in praying for creation and creation care.
Creator God, thank you so much for the gift of your creation. You have given us this beautiful world to experience and to enjoy. And thank you so much for the beauty that we see and hear and feel every day in the world around us, from the sunrise to the cool breeze to the chirping of the birds. Thank you for this world. But at the same time, Lord, we know that this world is not just a gift. It's also a responsibility. And Lord, we know that we have often failed in that responsibility. Forgive us for the ways that we have failed to care for the planet and the people in it. And help us to do better. Help us to care for your creation in a way that is truly sustainable for the whole world. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.